So here goes the very first Homegrown Evolution podcast. My name is Eric Knudsen. I'm the co-author with my wife, Kelly Coyne, of a book called The Urban Homestead, and I blog at homegrownevolution.com. On this first episode, we'll be talking about canning in the first half, and in the second half, a LA-specific bit about water, specifically a new and interesting LA City water harvesting program. Um, This podcast will appear very, very irregularly because basically I don't like to spend time in front of a computer. So don't expect something weekly, but it will appear from time to time. Um, Also, uh, excuse a few technical difficulties, Uh, we'll stop the mic popping, hopefully in the second episode, but I think everything's pretty clear in this one. Uh, The first guest we'll begin with is uh, Ashley English. Ashley English is a blogger and author currently working on a series of books called Homemade Living which will be published by Lark Books. The first two books will be coming out April of 2010, and the topics will be canning and preserving and chickens. Uh, We'll talk to Ashley in this episode about canning and preserving. Uh, Ashley is in North Carolina and spoke to us by phone this very month of August. Anyways, Ashley, thank you for joining me this morning, or this afternoon, your time. And uh, we could talk about a lot of things, but we're going to focus on canning today. But um, first of all, a little bit about who you are. You're an author, and you do all kinds of crazy things. Maybe you can list off a couple of the (laughs) nutty things you do around the house uh, and write about as well. It's an eclectic menagerie out here. We have... um my husband and I live on 12 acres just outside of Asheville, North Carolina, in a little community called Candler, and uh, it's pretty quiet. We are uh, surrounded by 350-acre nature preserve on one side and then undeveloped acreage on the other side, and uh, we're about a mile down the end of a dirt road. We've got five cats and two dogs and uh, five chickens and two beehives, and I, um, I'm authoring a series on different topics related to small-scale homesteading and sustainability. Uh, the series is called Homemade Living, and it'll be published by Lark Books and available. The first two books on raising chickens and canning and preserving will be available in April of 2010. So I spend my time writing um, the book series. I also have a blog called Small Measure where I write little anecdotes and information about um, what's going on out here at my house. And then I actually, tomorrow, will begin a weekly column on another blog called Design Sponge. Um, And my column will come out on Fridays. It'll be called Small Measures with Ashley. And it's little sustainability tips and links to other organizations that are doing noteworthy things with raising awareness about um, self-sufficiency and and environmentally uh, copacetic living, for lack of a better way to describe it. (laughs) 
And uh, your first book's about canning. So um, I was wondering, well, why should people can? I mean, it seems like something Grandma does, right? And we, we seem to have not been doing for a while. So what are the reasons why someone might want to can? Um, I think canning is one of the best methods of food preservation available. It literally allows you to put time in a bottle and sort of create this suspended vegetative animation, if you will, um, produce that you might otherwise not be able to use. Maybe it's past its prime, or maybe you have a huge bumper crop crop of something from your garden or something you picked up from the harvest, from the uh, farmer's market, you can use in canning, and it can be transformed to something that you can use at a later date. Um, also, canning lets you pick out the freshest, healthiest, most nutritious ingredients possible as the, the, the ingredients that you're using, the fruits, the vegetables, the herbs at times, they're harvested when they're at their peak of ripeness, and that allows the inherent nutrients to be more bioavailable for use by the body. And canning is, I've found, a great way to socialize. Sometimes I'll go to you pick farms with my friends um, or go to the tailgate market, get something out of my own garden and get friends over and we'll can. We'll make some jam together, and uh, I, I found that it's just a great way to do something productive while engaging your social life at the same time. So it's not just for people with the big fruit tree, yeah? I mean, if I live in an apartment uh, and I don't have uh, my own orchard, what, what, were, what are some of the reasons why I might want to consider canning? Well, I don't think it's necessary at all to have a yard by any stretch, um, a stoop, a balcony, anything. You don't necessarily need to be growing the produce in order to to can it. It, And it absolutely would make sense for an apartment dweller to can. For one thing, uh, canning equipment doesn't take up a large amount of space. Uh, Also, unless you're planning on canning multiple dozens of each item that you're producing, the amount of space offered in an apartment kitchen should more than meet your needs for storage. You could use uh, shelving space in a hall closet. You could use an armoire, or any kind of out-of-direct sunlight shelf to store your jars. Um, And some of the best produce available uh, can be found at urban farmer's markets. Um, I'm thinking in particular of some of the New York City's green markets or like farmer's markets in in, in Berkeley. Um, Just because you don't grow the fruits or the vegetables doesn't mean that you might not impulsively decide to purchase multiple pints of strawberries or a big bushel or two of apples or peaches, and then you'll need to figure out something to do with them. And canning, I think, is a great solution. So what kind of equipment do I need to get started, bare minimum? Um, not very much. It's surprising. Uh, some, I think sometimes people think it's intimidating to get started with canning because it incurs a lot of uh, upstart cost for equipment. And unless you're buying a pressure canner, which can, doesn't have to be, but it can be costly, um, most of the things that you need to can, many people already have in their kitchens, like a, a stock pot. You can use the canner that most people think of when they think of home canning, like the aluminum glazed canner, or you could just use any kind of large stock pot that you might have. Um, you need canning jars, of course, and they have tempered glass, also called mason jars, and the glass for canning is uh, it's specifically meant for repeated use as opposed to like maybe a mayonnaise jar or a peanut butter jar or something that you might have and be tempted to use for canning, it won't withstand the rigors of 
repeated heating and um, the screw bands and lids probably won't fit them. Uh, and so you'll also need screw bands and lids, and you need to use a new lid every time. Um, and you want to keep your screw bands free of rust. Uh, extra things that I found helpful when I can, a silicone oven mitt, because when you're putting the jars down in the water, I've had my hands splash one too many times by a boiling cauldron of water to learn that a silicone mitt is, is pretty helpful. Um, I have a little gadget. It's called a lid magnet, and it lifts the lids out of the water to put easily on top of a jar. It's really helpful. And then a jar lifter. Um, it has rubber gripping around it, so it's a lot easier for picking a jar up and moving in and out of hot water than just using uh, any other kind of device to, to lift it. Um, a canning rack, you can use it. You don't have to have it. I don't use it. I have a metal, like a metal cake trivet like cooler, cake cooler trivet that I put on the bottom of my canner. Um, so there's not very much that you need to get started. Now, this is something I've always been confused about. Does the stock pot and the metal you put in that pot need to be non-reactive metal? In other words, can you use aluminum or does what does it matter what the, the metal is of the stuff that you put in the pot and the pot itself? Not, when, not the pot that you're using for the water bath canning. The pot that you're cooking... Um, your jam or your jelly or your brine, you know, for your pickles, that you don't want it to be aluminum. You don't want a reactive pan because it can react adversely with the, the acid, either in like lemon juice or vinegar, and it can compromise the flavor. But the water bath canner itself can be an aluminum pot. That's fine. And why can't I reuse the lids? Uh, you can't reuse the lids, even though some people do. It's suggested by the USDA that you don't because... The lids themselves are made of uh, tin-plated steel that's covered in a food-grade coating, and running the entire circumference of the underside of the lid, there's a rubber compound that's especially formulated for vacuum sealing of foods at home. Once it's been used, it creates an almost imperceptible impression in the rubber compound so that if you use it again, because there's that teeny little, you know, invention, it might not be able to form a proper vacuum seal. So I don't throw mine out, though, because I don't like to throw out anything that I don't have to. So you could either reuse them for something that you're going to store as a dry good in your pantry, like dried beans or oats or something, or um, you can save them up. I have a ton of them, and then take them to a local elementary school for uh, teachers to use in art and craft projects with their students. Now, there's a European style of, of, I guess not a can, I don't recall it, but it has got a gasket around it, and it's reusable. Have you, do you have any experience with those? I haven't used them. The European style of jars uh, is kind of a contentious topic in American canning circles. Some people swear by them. In my book um, on canning and preserving, I only recommend using the mason jars that have the two-piece lid and screw band enclosures, um, that's the method that, that's recommended by the USDA. That's the one I have to follow in order to adhere to food safety guidelines in a book for public use. But the USDA claims that they're not safe because the closures, it's difficult at times to determine if you've absolutely uh, created a vacuum seal short of opening up the jar and you know seeing if there's spoilage or smelling something. With the two-piece enclosures, you can see it 
when the seal is formed, you see the lid actually go down. You hear it, it pops, and then you, when you lift the lid, if it's securely attached, it won't come off. So there's three ways of kind of fail-safing that you've properly created a vacuum seal, and it's hard to, to know that for certain with those European-style jars. And that said, it's entirely up to individuals. You know, they're safely used all over Europe, and you know, I think if someone is interested in those, they should just read up a little bit more and make the most informed decision they can as to whether or not they want to use them. Now, talking about water bath canning here, uh, as opposed to pressure canning, what are you, what are your favorite things to to can? You know, low, a high acid foods we're talking about here. Right. Um, I'm particularly fond of canning, uh, like sweet toppings, butters, jams, preserves, um, especially when I'm doing them with maybe fruits that I picked myself from my yard or a nearby farm. I really like to go to my mom's apple tree in the fall and. She doesn't have to do anything, and her apple tree constantly produces all these fantastic apples. I have apples in my yard. I have apple trees in my yard. They're nice for cooking with. They're not so nice for eating straight. Um, hers are perfect either way. But I really like, you know, over the winter in January, my dad mailed me a huge box of kumquats from his tree in Florida, and I love to take especially things that have a little bit of a history, like a hidden narrative that I'm personally attached to in some way and transform those into butters and jams and preserves. It makes the kitchen smell great. It's great for gift giving. I love when I have my morning toast and I'm reminded of, you know, berry picking with a friend and the jam that I'm eating. Those are the things that I really like. That and pickles. My husband is crazy about pickles, so I make a lot of pickles. And you make pickles, how do you make pickles? Vinegar or lacto-fermented or... I made just a vinegar-based pickles. We have, I don't even know how many cucumber plants in my garden, and I'm constantly picking off pickle, cucumbers. And um, I just make a basic brine with vinegar and water and then lots of garlic cloves and fresh, uh, fresh dill. I like to put cumin seeds in, black peppercorns. Yeah, I have, I, I've done, um, it's been a long time since I've done the lacto-fermented pickles just because I, I want them now. <laughs> <laughs> We like them so much, and we go through them so fast. I should get back into uh, the fermented pickles, though. They're they're really delicious. Okay, now pectin. Pectin is something I think is intimidating for people trying out canning for the first time. Well, first of all, I guess you should explain what it is. Uh, but then, you know, like powdered liquid, some fruits have pectin in them. What I'm I'm confused about this myself. Pectin is um, a naturally occur- occurring water-soluble type of carbohydrate that's found in the tissue, the skin, the seeds of any type of, of fruit. Um, it's what's needed to react with sugar and acid to create a gel or a bond. It's what causes it to get firm. Without it, you're, you know, if you're making strawberry jam, you would have a runny syrup. You wouldn't have a jam. It's what allows jams and jellies to actually retain some shape. Um, not all fruits are have much pectin. Some are pretty low, like uh, let's say like a honeydew or a cantaloupe. Um, figs are low in pectin. Berries have kind of a moderate amount. Uh, a sour apple or a sour cherry, they have a higher content. And it's necessary to have pectin in order for this 
gel to form. Um, if you're cooking with something that is high in pectin, like an apple, you might not need to add supplemental pectin. If you're cooking with something low, in order to get that firmness, you're going to have to add pectin. And you can do that by either combining your low pectin fruit, like figs, um, with an ingredient that has pectin in it, like sugar, or some other fruit that's high in pectin, or you could add commercial pectin. And um, commercial pectin comes powdered and liquid, and uh, you know, depending on which one you use, it determines where you add it in your steps in your, your recipe. Um, I use it on occasion. It's great if you want to control the amount of sugar in a recipe. Um, there are low sugar and no sugar pectins that you can buy commercially prepared at the grocery store, and they allow you to considerably reduce the amount of sugar in a recipe. Sometimes people are a little astounded at how much sugar is called for in a recipe in order to make jam, but it's, it's essential if you want to create that bond that firms it up without adding a whole bunch of, of other pectin. So it can get tricky to, you know, but once you, once you learn the ropes of adding pectin or not, and most recipes are going to tell you, add this pectin, pectin not needed. Um, you can make your own pectin too. It's uh, relatively easy. Um, you can make it with like Granny Smith apples. I have a recipe for making homemade pectin in my book, and it's relatively easy to find recipes for making homemade pectin uh, online and in other canning cookbooks. Now, we're dancing around, of course, the gel point here, which is another frustration of, of mine. I think a lot of people start canning for the first time. You make a batch, and it doesn't set. Mm-hmm. So um, how do you determine when that gel point, I guess we need to define what the gel point is, too. Uh, how do you determine that point? How do you know um, when you've reached it? And then what do you do when you screw up and mm-hmm. uh, you end right. up with a runny, syrupy stuff well i what i gel point is the point at which your whatever you're making um jam jelly preserve conserve well not jelly necessarily but um it's when it's actually formed that bond where the uh, the, the chemical bonds are formed within it the polysaccharides create a, a chain bond that allows it to firm up and it's really hard to determine that when it's still hot so what I do, as soon as I start making my, my recipe, as soon as I put the pan on the stove and start filling it up with you know whatever fruit and sugar and whatnot, I put two small um, plates, like two small saucers, in my freezer. And then once I've cooked the recipe for the designated amount of time that it's supposed to be, uh, that it's supposed to achieve a set, I'll take one of those plates out of the freezer and I'll put a little bit of the mixture onto it. Then I put the plate back in the freezer and I'll wait for two minutes take it back out and I'll push it with the, you know, my fingertip. And if it's properly gelled, the surface will wrinkle up a little bit. If it doesn't, and, and it's very obvious. Like it actually, it looks kind of coagulated and you squish it and it moves solidly. If it runs, you clearly have not achieved a gel uh, or a, a set so what you would do is just keep cooking five minutes longer and then use that second plate that you put in your freezer and test it on that one. And the, the longer you cook, the more you're going act, to you activate that bond to form. On the other hand, if you overcook it, you can cook the pectin out of things and then 
the bond won't form. So it's kind of a tricky dance. But I stop right at the cooking time that's indicated in the recipe, do that first gel, gel test with the freezer plate, and then go from there. And let's say I've already canned the stuff and it's still runny. Can I fix that? Once you're going to compromise the quality of your finished product every time that you recook it, um, just the tissue will wear down in the vegetative matter, and so you're going to have a compromised quality product. I would just chuck it up to you know using for a syrup or and keep it in your refrigerator uh, if if it fails that grandly. But if you're checking it, I would always encourage people to check for the set before you, you know, don't just take it off the burner and say, okay, it's cooked for 25 minutes, it's time to put the strawberry jam in the jar. Check it first. And if it doesn't set up, cook it a little bit more and then check it again. Now, do you as a really experienced uh, jam maker still have, you know, mistakes that happen? Does, does that still happen to you or, or is the gel test in the freezer really rock solid? I found that my, my the, what happens to me if something goes wrong when I'm canning a batch of something, it doesn't happen with um, getting a, a gel set. That I've got covered. What happens is if I ever have, when I'm filling the jars and I get maybe just a trace amount of jam on the rim, and even after I wipe the rim before I put the lid on, somehow there's a little bit of food residue, that's the only time that I'll have any canning snafus anymore you know he'll come out of the the water bath and just the lid won't be on there properly Um, and 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 is there a way to fix that you have to use a new lid and you empty the contents out of your jar into another clean glass jar and you reprocess the whole time the the whole jar there have been times when i've said screw it (laughs) i've been in the kitchen long enough it's a hot day and then i'll just put the jar in the fridge because the, the the product inside the jar is fine, and I'll just, you know, know that I need to consume it within like a week, week and a half, which isn't a problem in my house because we eat lots of toast. So <laughs> Very good. And, you know, I, I suspect a lot of people are afraid of canning. So is is canning dangerous? Canning, I wouldn't say it's dangerous if uh, you're using newer recipe books. If you're following a recipe book that calls for open kettle canning, which is when you just cook it on the stove, whatever your recipe is, you cook it on the stove and put it right in a jar and put a lid on it and don't water bath can it, that can definitely be dangerous. Um, But if you're following any kind of canning recipe book that's been written within the last two decades, you're in good shape as long as you follow it line by line. You know, and I would say for people that are just getting into canning, take your time. The first two three times that you can. Uh, take your time. Have all your ingredients assembled. Have all your equipment ready. Don't be trying to rush it. Follow each step. I think where the largest risks are with home canning uh, comes into play with pressure canning. Um, and a lot of people are mostly when they're afraid of home canning, they're afraid that their pressure canner will explode or that they'll get botulism. And so pressure canning is extremely worthwhile if you want to can maybe, say, just, just corn by itself or just green beans um, without any added vinegar, lemon juice, or anything to acidify it and change the pH. Uh, if people don't know about botulism and how it is produced, and I'll go ahead and explain, botulism is a spore that lives on 
vegetative matter that has a low pH, which is going to be vegetables. Um, most fruits don't have an issue with botulism spores, so they can safely be canned in a water bath canner. Botulism has to be heated to 242 degrees. The spores have to reach that temperature in order to die. The only way that you're going to create that kind of high heat environment is inside a pressure canner. So if you want that canned corn or those green beans, you have to pressure can them. And you need to make sure you're working with a pressure canner that you know how to operate, that's ac accurately working. Um, and in my book, I detail exactly how to determine whether or not your pressure canner is working properly. And it's really just a matter of um, reading up a bit before you start canning and then following recipes that are tried and uh, consistent and safe for use. What are your favorite things to pressure can? I really like canned corn. <laughs> I, I just there's there's nothing like it. My husband does all of the cooking in our house. He's an incredible cook, and I do all the baking. And it's so nice to just have for him in the pantry corn for him to go in and grab. We've had we live like I said back you know on 12 acres, and we've had uh, hurricanes make their way up through the coast into the mountains of Western North Carolina. Other things you know ice ice storms that cause power lines to snap, and we'll lose power sometimes. And to have what we need in the pantry that isn't subject to the whims of electricity and loss of refrigeration, it's really nice to have vegetables available right there just to use. So uh, that well-stocked pantry isn't just about flavor. It's about uh, a certain amount of being prepared. for Absolutely, which is why canning is such a good idea for country dweller and city dweller alike. If you're living in, you know, L.A., if you're living in New York City, if you're living in London, wherever, if you're in an urban environment and you lose power, if you have things in your pantry that you've, you know, if you've made pickles, if you've canned corn, you've got things that are shelf-stable and um, you can open up a jar and eat it. Maybe you can't heat it up. <laughs> if you have a wood stove, maybe, or a propane, you know, camp stove, then you can, but... But uh, I prefer that to having a freezer full of frozen items. We've lost power, and we've uh, our refrigerator died for two weeks, and we had to keep everything in a ice chest, you know, and in a cooler. And it's really nice to know that we didn't have a freezer full of things that were going to be gone forever. What about meat and fish? Do you can either of those things? And I I don't eat meat. Um, I do eat fish when, and I have, have not yet done any pressure canning with the, you have to pressure can uh, any kind of seafood, meat, dairy products. They have to be uh, pressure canned, again, because of the pH concern. But no, I haven't. I'd like to uh, maybe catch some local mountain trout and um, can that and be able to use that just like you would tuna fish in your pantry or canned sardines. You can do that. You can home can fish pretty easily. I've actually had a couple friends do it. I haven't yet done it myself. Mountain trout. I'm coming over for dinner. So, <laughs> um, what, remind me again when your book's coming out, what it's called, and where people can get it. The, uh, the series is called Homemade Living, um, and the first two books, the first, they, they're coming out simultaneously so that people will say, hey, this is a series. Uh, the first two books are on raising chickens and canning and preserving, and they'll be available Wherever books are sold, all over the world, actually, it's going to be internationally uh, published in multiple languages. Uh, they'll be available April 2010. 
Very good. So uh, this is a trend, isn't it? Chickens canning, bees, all these things seem to be coming back. And why do you think that is right now? I think there's a number of reasons. I think that people are, uh, there's been some international food scares that have kind of um, raised concern about how food is processed and manufactured and grown. And um, I think that people out of concern for the nutritional welfare of their their own bodies and their families and their communities are turning to doing it themselves. And then you know, you know, you know where you got it, you knew who grew it. Um, there's a continuum that's absent in foods that you buy, mass marketed and mass produced. And I think also uh, people are finding it financially prudent to have maybe a little plot where you're growing something or support your local farmer at your community tailgate market. Um, you can save a lot on items that don't have to be shipped as far. Um, I think people are interested in resurgences of community. Uh, even if you're in a, a large city, uh, you can get to know other people in a really kind of enduring and I think sincere way when you're actively crafting food together, growing food together. Um, so it's a community act. So now you mentioned you uh, get together with people to can, but I assume you also exchange canned goods with each other. Is that, is that right? Do you have any kind of formal thing going, or is it kind of an informal thing in your community? It's kind of an informal thing. One, uh, I, I did offer a couple suggestions, though, in my canning book for ways to socialize, and one of them is kind of like a canning version of a cookie swap where everyone brings maybe a dozen of a particular canned good and they know in advance who is bringing what so there's not five types of strawberry jam but everybody brings a dozen or so of something and exchanges an item and then you go home with a dozen different items um, so that's a great way to hang out with your friends and go home with new exciting things to try and then there's also the idea of actually going and getting whatever your raw material is together go to you know, you pick berry farm or an apple farm in the fall and then get back together and, um, you know, make something out of what you've, what you've harvested together. How lovely. Well, thank you very much, Ashley, for talking to me. And uh, we'll have to, assuming the podcast works out, we'll um, have you back on to talk about chickens and bees and whatever else you're writing about, all those many things. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Now from canning to water. This segment of the show will be a little bit Los Angeles specific. I was contacted by a PR firm uh, about getting the word out about a new rain barrel program in the city of Los Angeles. Normally I wouldn't respond to that kind of uh, email, but uh, I really believe in this program. Um, basically it's a pilot program in which uh, residents can receive a free uh, rainwater barrel. Um, there's also rain garden programs and a planter box that larger businesses can get from the city. Um, I spoke to Wing Tam, uh, who is the assistant division manager for the Watershed Protection Program in the Bureau of Sanitation, about this program. Uh, if you're a resident of Los Angeles in the areas that Wing mentions, you can sign up for the program at www.larainwaterharvesting.org, and we'll have the link on our site as well. 
So, Wing, thank you for joining me this morning. Um, I was wondering if you could describe for me and tell me a little bit about the City of Los Angeles's uh, rainwater harvesting program. The uh, rainwater harvesting program, uh, to us, is a very, very exciting program. Uh, what it does is that it will help us to conserve water as well as to uh, help us to uh, decrease the amount of pollutant uh, or but that gets into our ocean by having this uh, a rainwater run on the street and out into the ocean. Uh, what we're doing right now is that uh, we're rolling out the program uh, started around July. Uh, we're providing free assistance and tools to residents and commercial business willing to collect rainwater for storage and use on their private property for irrigation. Uh, and it, we have a um, sign-up program uh, for resident, uh, either uh, installing a rain barrel uh, or disconnected uh, from a downspout to an impervious area like a rain garden or, or for irrigation use, and uh, 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 planter boxes for some business. Uh, so these captured water will definitely help us down row of of basically. Uh, conserving water uh, and reusing that uh, at the site. So this is a pilot program initially, right? So what what areas of the city right now can people apply for the program for? You are absolutely correct, uh, Eric. This, this is a pilot program. Um, the area that, that we're looking at right now is uh, basically three areas. The Jefferson area, which is bonged by La Cienega Boulevard Adams, uh, La Brea and Jefferson Boulevard. The Sotel and Mar Vista neighborhood, which is two areas, bound by Sentinella, Pico, Sotel, and Venice. And how do people apply for the program right now? Do you have to be a homeowner? What's the application process like? The, the, actually, the application process is very, very simple. We want to make it as easy as possible for uh, the uh, residents, and it's available to uh, any resident that's in the CLA uh, to apply, and specifically in the target areas. What we have done is that we set up a website called um, LARainwaterHarvesting.org, and people just log on to the website, fill out an application form, and uh, one of our staff, uh, city staff, will contact. Uh, the homeowner and uh, visit the site and value the site and see how it applies uh, and if it's eligible, uh, put in rain barrel or that sort. Now, so it's real of, easy. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. In, in terms of the barrels, uh, what what do the barrels look like? Are they different sizes depending on the size of the roof you have? Um, what what's the configuration there? What what kind of barrels are you using? Uh, the the barrels that we're using is is um, they're 55 gallons. Uh, we're, 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 we did some initial uh, research, market research, and we're finding out that a 55-gallon barrel is the most practical uh, configuration. They're like any kind of like pickle barrel, kind of object shape. They're like three feet high, two feet diameter. They weigh about 20 pounds. And uh, once you fill it up with water, they could weigh somewhere around 200 pounds. Um, that's why we think it's, it's the right size for residents to handle. Anything larger 
you know, it, it may be too heavy, too bulky. Anything smaller, you may not necessarily be able to cap the amount wearing the what water you need for to retain it. Uh, they we have in I think two color ones in black and the other one is terracotta for this pilot study. Now, in terms of installation, do I, as a homeowner, a business owner, install it myself, or does the city install it for me? For this pilot program, the city is actually going to do everything. Basically, they will once the application process is filled up and the, and the homeowner qualifies, uh, we will have we will go out to the site, evaluate it what is the appropriate one to use, rain barrel or or rain garden. Uh, and uh, basically install it uh, and complete the whole job uh, without disturbance to resident. So the city will be uh, providing uh, the service from, from beginning to end, and the value of that service, you know, including the rain barrel, is somewhere around $250. Oh, and so do I have to pay for that, or is that provided? No, it's free. It's okay. free for the homeowners for this pilot program. Excellent. Um, in terms of this, the building codes, oftentimes the building codes stipulate that you have to run the rainwater out to the street. So in terms of the rain garden idea you're thinking of, um, how do you get around that, or is, is that not a problem? Right now, and, and actually we've been meeting internally with city uh, department and our city partners, uh, we actually, uh, because we are working on a pilot program, We've been working with Bill and Safety uh, and other departments uh, as part of this process uh, to look at, uh, because of the pilot, to look at what are some of the issues coming out of this and do we need to uh, uh, revisit coal or do or how can we make sure that we meet all the coal requirements to ensure that the safety in home business is, 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 is uh, adequate. Uh, so we we have a a mechanism in place, very working very closely with our coal people, uh, so, so that uh, uh, they're part of the process of how we could uh, expedite this because it is a pilot. We're finding to try and find those issues, and if we do uh, when we do go out for a citywide program, those issues won't be there. Do you think that maybe some of those issues can be looked at? Uh, going forwards, in other words, maybe some changes in the the building and uh, code that that might uh, result from this pilot project. Um, we're working that we're working very closely with with our uh, with our building uh, safety department uh, to see what that is and and to resolve it. So right now, that's part of the process of this pilot. And this seems like a big change for the city of L.A. because it seems for so many years we talk about stormwater and now we're talking uh-huh. about rainwater and it seems like a very positive change. Do you think there will be other implications um, in terms of maybe government buildings and, and larger larger commercial buildings in terms of, of dealing with rainwater? Uh, I completely agree with you. It, 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 it absolutely, uh, yes, there will be some positive changes. I mean, th- this is consistent with what you know the mayor has said uh, that he wants to make the greenest city in the uh, no, greenest uh, city in the, in, the, in the world. I mean, in the country in the world for CLA. So, uh, and also meeting the water conservation goal that that he has established. So, this is one mechanism for us uh, to use. Now, one of the things that that the reason we're uh, we're heading to, toward this direction is because we in government uh, has in the past took the approach that 
uh, we will resolve the problem for the resident in terms of like water pollutants and water conservation. So we will spend a lot of money building a lot of the central facilities, uh, in which we have. We build a lot of facilities to retain water at parks and other places. But now we want to also engage the community. We want the community to be partner with us to see if we could uh, have them help us reduce the amount of water uh, that that gets out into the uh, storm drain system as well as conserve the water. So we could have that private-public partnership, and that's what we call this, uh, to if they could uh, uh, conserve some of that water or, or, or retain some of the water on their site, as well as the city spending their effort uh, of, of um, uh, taking care of some of the larger issue with, with water pollution and all that. Uh, this is a win-win situation uh, in terms of CMA may not necessarily have to spend as much now because of big regional effort, uh, whereas the community will be engaged to help us reduce that amount that comes out into storming that we have to deal with. So it's, 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 it's a little bit different paradigm. You're absolutely right. I realize this might be a difficult question to answer, but uh, in terms of the amount of uh, rainwater that could ultimately be saved and, and groundwater recharged. If you projected what uh, what we might gain if this were uh, a citywide program, yeah, I, I, we, I was trying to do some numbers, and, and actually, it is pretty impressive how much uh, water uh, that we could potentially uh, uh, save. Um, let's say, take an average um, uh, average home. Let's say has a roof about a thousand square feet. And in, in, the, in the city of Los Angeles area here, our annual rainfall is somewhere around 15 inches uh, a year. So if we could harvest that water, it could be somewhere around almost close to 10,000 gallons per home per year. Uh, it's like 9,600 gallons per home per year. And if you work out the math, uh, basically one home, uh, 9,600 gallons per uh, uh, a year, um, if you f have 500 homes, you're basically close to almost 5 million gallons of water. And if you have 1,000 homes, it's basically close to 10 million gallons of water. Uh, in the city, there's, there's roughly about 700,000 and 800,000 parcels. So you can see how much water you could actually harvest just from the roof. So... You're talking about millions of gallons of water. Incredible. So are there other municipalities in America that have uh, done a program like this? Uh, have you looked at other we, examples? We looked at other examples. Um, uh, obviously, there's a number of, of other municipalities that's doing this type of work, uh, like uh, the Pacific Northwest area and some out in the East Coast. Uh, but a lot of those people are basically... Uh, uh, in the, especially in the East Coast, they have an older system, so they have a combined sanitary sewer and storm drain system. So their their goal is is reduce the amount of water, rainwater that get into sanitary sewer for treatment at a, at a treatment plant. So a little bit different goal. Uh, same thing with the Pacific Net, uh, Northwest. They have a combined system. Here in the CLA, we actually have a separate system for sanitary sewer. And, and separate for stormwater system, so we're we're probably probably one of the first uh, to actually tackle this issue from a separate stormwater system point of view. The reason we're starting with this project is because we were, we obtained some funding, and our our partnership 
funding partnership uh, is from the Salmon Bay Restoration Commission. Uh, without them, we would not be able to start some of this work. So I really appreciate them doing a lot of that work, as well as um, a lot of the resident in the uh, Jefferson, Sartell, Mar Vista area, uh, they're very dedicated to conservation and sustainability, and they have a passion for green garden. So that's the reason why we went with them and tried to set up this pilot program so that we could establish some kind of practical uh, solution when we go citywide. So it's a refinement process. I think with with the residents' help, it will actually help us to move forward with a program citywide that could be implemented uh, practically for everyone. So I really appreciate that. Do you think there's some potential for stimulus money, federal money? There's a, there's a possibility uh, for this uh, uh, for this program, um, and uh, we are we will uh, look at that and 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 apply and see how we could uh, be able to get some of that money. And one last question: I forgot to ask you about the planters huh? you mentioned. Now, how does that basically work? for a lot of business? Um, it's not a simple solution where you could disconnect the downspout because a lot of times they don't really have a place to go. Uh, so for business, it's a twofold. Uh, what we want to do is that uh, these planters, they're basically rectangular type of planting next to business with, that's planted with green plants. We want run water into those planters uh, to help with uh, irrigation and filtering out all the pollutants. So it will actually help with, uh, besides uh, uh, um, uh, greening the area uh, for some of this business, but also to help reducing some of the pollutants. So that's one reason why business, we need to consider them not just uh, residential areas too. So that's one reason why we're doing that. Well, uh, thank you very much, Wing, and I will let you know when okay. this goes up. And thanks for talking to me, and good luck with the program. I'm very I excited. I am too. So anytime you have any questions, just feel free to give me a call. Excellent. Thank, thank you, you very Wing. much. Bye-bye. When the subject is water in Los Angeles, you got to talk to Joe Linton. Joe Linton is a water and bike activist and is a blogger at lacreekfreet.wordpress.com and is also the author of a wonderful guidebook called Down by the Los Angeles River. Uh, we caught up with Joe at an event at LA Eco Village where he lives, so uh, the uh, background noise you'll hear is the sort of general partying that uh, goes on there. So uh, we decided to ask Joe what he thought of this particular uh, rainwater harvesting program. Well, I think the program's a really good thing, and uh, and I think we should actually make it legal within the city of L.A. and allow, uh, you know, talk to the folks at Building and Safety and allow rain barrels in our code and allow uh, stormwater uh, downspout uh, redirection into yards, which are currently illegal. But, I mean, I, I should say, I mean a little cynical, but I, the program's actually a really good thing. Um, I think it'll, I think it can serve as a template for stuff throughout the city. I think it's really what we need to do in Los Angeles. We design things to uh, send rain as fast as possible out of the city and then we import all kinds of water at great cost. So the more we can slow down, Brad, Brad Lancaster talks about treat, treat rainwater like a guest. You know, 
sit down, set, you know, spend some time, and you know, settle. Whatever. The more we can, the more we can slow that rainwater down and let it soak in. The 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 better it is for the environment. The better it is for flooding. The better it is for water quality. All, all kinds of great benefits from this program. But what would you do if you were Maravilla Gosa and could just wave a magic wand and do a water program for LA? What would it look like? Would it look? Would it have this rain barrel as a component of that, or would it would it have something else, or what would it look like? Yeah, I think I think a lot of decentralized interventions would make sense. I think passive rainwater harvesting earthworks in yards that allow the water to soak in, rain barrels definitely, downspout issues definitely, um, permeable pavement, uh, gray water. Um, you know, drought-tolerant landscape. Uh, all, all those things, I think, are components. I mean, I, I think that there's uh, that would be a good start. Let's let's get let's get a let's let's encourage. I mean, and I, I think conservation too. Sort of uh, maybe like like even like personal water audits. Go into people's houses, figure out what you know what's using a lot of water, and if there are ways to. Uh, you know, replace that washing machine or that toilet or something. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of really simple stuff on the on the conservation end that that we can still do. We've, we and and to DWP's credit, actually, the city of LA has done quite a bit of that. But uh, but I think there, there's still there's still plenty more to do. All right, and what's your blog now for the podcast listeners? <laughs> My blog is LA Creek Freak, and the address is LA. Creek C R E E K Freak F R E A K dot WordPress dot com and it's my blog and Jessica Hall's blog who does excellent work on uncovering the the, the hidden streams of Los Angeles. And the book plug, the book is... That's right, and and everyone should run out and get uh, Down by the Los Angeles River by Joe Linton, published by Wilderness Press. It's available at your local bookstore. That was available at your local bookstore. Well, thank you, Joe. Anything else to add? No, just that I, I guess I should say, too, so watershed management, looking at how we, you know, the, the question might be, or the, the connection I'd like to make for your listeners is that um, the way we can, if we look at the concrete L.A. River and we think about how to restore it, we need to really look at, the, to, to get a healthy river, we need a healthy watershed, a healthy basin that drains into that river. And so if we're going to pull concrete out of the L.A. River, we need our neighborhoods to be a lot more permeable and to allow stormwater, allow rainwater to soak in on site. So I think these sort of programs done throughout the base and throughout the city, throughout all the cities in the county, um, are what will allow us incrementally to take the edge off of a lot of issues in the river, which which would include water pollution and uh, water quantity, i.e. flooding. So the more we can soak the water in and the the less we just shunt it away as fast as possible, the by retrofitting our neighborhoods, we can take some of the pressure off the river uh, for flooding. And then if we take off that flooding pressure, we can take away some of the concrete down at the river. The, the other thing it'll help a lot with is water supply. We 
we live in a Mediterranean region, but but it is relatively dry, and we do import a lot of water at, at huge costs to the environment um, and and to global warming. In fact, so I mean, a, a, a LA a quarter of the energy that's generated by the city of LA goes to pump water to Los Angeles. So if we can increase our reliance on local water supplies, on rainwater that we capture, we can uh, decrease those importations and so we would we would reduce energy use and uh, reduce all these impacts that we're having on water throughout the state, throughout the West. So there there are a lot of there are a lot of small interventions that folks can take where they live that that have cumulatively huge impacts on the health of our, our rivers like green barrels and water gardens and that kind of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's important to look at look at how water, you know, look at look, go out when it starts to rain. Look at how water behaves on on the at the building where you live, and and try to see if are there places where that water can slow down and soak into the ground, or whether that water can be captured and reused later. Or, I mean, it's sort of looking at how are how our impermeable our our hardscape life you know <laughs> lifestyles uh, how we can soften those in Los Angeles that's it for the very first homegrown evolution podcast thanks to our guests Ashley English Wing Tam and Joe Linton Theme music is by the Hotfoot Quartet and is available on archive.org. Feel free to send us a comment or letter at homegrownevolution at sbcglobal.net. Perhaps we'll read some on the next podcast. As always, stay in touch with us on the blog at www.homegrownevolution.com. Mongoloid, he was a mongoloid, and if you turn around, what you can see? Mongoloid, he was a mongoloid, and the twins were unaware. Mongoloid, he was a mongoloid, and nobody even cared. And he wore a hat, and he had a job, and he brought home the bacon so that Nobody knew Mongoloid, Nobody knew